This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with clinical psychologist Dr. Tara Porter. Based in London, England, Porter specializes in the treatment of eating disorders, depression, and anxiety in girls and adolescents. She's also the best-selling author of You Don't Understand Me, Finding Yourself, Facing Your Problems, and Figuring Out Life When Nobody Gets It. The book addresses the mental health of teen girls and young women, and Dr. Porter joins me today from North London to talk about it. Welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So this is the book that I wish I had had as a teenage girl. And I really love this quote from author and journalist Caitlin Moran, who describes your book as the 21st century girl's survival pack. If God were a mother, this is the Bible she would write for your teenage girls and young women. This book is the greatest gift you could give your daughter. I think part of what makes your book so unique is that you're speaking to girls themselves and not to their parents. It's not a parenting book. Why was it important for you to take this approach? Oh, I mean, I think that's the approach that came out of me, really. That that, that was the book I had inside me to write. I think I've worked for 25 years in child and adolescent mental health and mainly with teenage girls and and some young women, but I've been struggling with them, with their problems, you know, sitting with them in their pain, trying to understand things, trying to find a way out. And often I might use a therapeutic letter. So at the end of a session, if we've been struggling with a a complex issue and psychological issues are, you know, often abstract and difficult to understand and difficult to understand the relationships between different aspects of it, I would drop them a letter, uh, drop them a note, and pulling it all together and putting it in one book, really. That was what I, I wanted to do. And once I had the idea, I did it pretty quickly, really. <laughs> it, was, it was ready. It was ready to go in my head. I just didn't realize it. Yeah. How did you come to focus your own clinical and private practice on, on girls? Well, I've, I've worked in our National Health Service for over for 28 years. I've, just, I've actually just wound that up. And I just was in a team where... We were treating teenage girls and young women, and I found I sort of had a natural affinity to it. And that was just where I specialized more and more and more. Yeah, I don't know why that is. I, I, I do really enjoy working with, with teenage girls. I think part of why I enjoy working with teen, teenagers actually is because there's such an opportunity for hope with teenagers. So, and I'm sure some of the parents listening to this podcast probably aren't feeling that right now. They're feeling that they're stuck and they don't know which way they're going and are they ever going to be out of this. But when you're working with teenagers, they are on a developmental trajectory anyway. Their life at 15 is, is never going to be the same as their life at 25. In a different way to our lives at 45 might be pretty much the same as, as at 55. It's just not, we just have, don't have that rate of change later in life. And so you're, you're kind of, Jumping on their developmental trajectory when you're working with them, you can nudge them in directions. You can sow seeds in their uh, in their minds about how things might be different, or 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 hope for the future. Hope is a big thing for teenagers, actually, and and often when teenagers write to me or or talk to me at the end of therapy, they say to me, oh, "Well, thank you for keeping the hope alive. Thank you for." And, and I do always have that in my head about, you know, how their life might be different. I guess I've just seen that a lot now that I've seen teenagers come out the other side of it. Things be a bit better, be different. It is a very hopeful tone, the book. 
it isn't doom and gloom. I mean, you, you cover a lot of topics, uh, family, friendships, anxiety and worry, attraction and sex, food and body image, screens. Why these particular topics? How has your sort of 25 plus, 28 years, I suppose, practice shaped what you felt was important for you to be speaking to girls about in this book? I guess they were just the topics that came up over and over and over again. And some of them I knew I knew about, you know, so I've worked a lot with eating disorders. And so food and eating came out very quickly and and education. I'm, I'm quite involved in mental health, a special interest in mental health in schools and the impact of the school system on, on mental health. And I've done quite a lot of work over here in that area. And so those chapters, they came out very easily but other ones I hadn't realized I talked so much to young people about things like love, about love and sex, you know, the impact of Me Too, of porn, of all different aspects of relationships with young women. But we had talked about those things. And actually, the, the, the topics that I knew the most about academically, which I guess was the food and eating, the education, were in some ways they were harder to write because I got kind of bogged down in the academic stuff and they had to be edited. But no, the I guess these were just the things that came up over and over again with young women. I'd like to get into some of the chapters and we won't have time to cover everything, but around family and parenting, you say that, you know, a young person needs just one adult who they think cares about them to form an attachment and for them to be okay. And that that relationship is an intricate dance. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so I, I make an analogy. So there's a big research literature about attachment, and I think that has has passed over into sort of common parlance now. I think most people have a sense of what an attachment relationship is. It's that relationship you start making with a baby when you do baby talk, where you tickle their toes, when you look after them, when you feed them when they're hungry, when you pick them up when they're crying. And it is a to-and-fro relationship. There's a really good video online you can change the way you think about attachment if you look it up it's called the still face experiment and it's about how if you're chatting to a baby in the kind of baby talk and playing with them and holding their hands and then you stop and you just make your face very very still how distressed the baby gets very quickly and you really see the reciprocal nature of that relationship and that's not just in the baby age that goes through when they're toddlers and when they're usually school-aged children and then when they're older teenagers. But the dance is different. The way that the reciprocal relationship plays out is different at all those different stages of development. So that's my analogy for for understanding it. And then I go on to say in the sort of second chapter, which the first chapter is about attachment and the second chapter is about families and parents and, and how when you're a teenager, you begin to think the dance is a bit lame. You think I make an analogy to being in a nightclub with, with your parents and it's their nightclub. They've chosen everything. They decide what drinks are going to be served and what the music's going to be. And you begin to think it's a bit shabby or ridiculous. or uh, And that's an analogy to the teenagers starting to question the way their parents does, do things. And that, 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 of course, is an evolutionary drive. It's an evolutionary drive for teenagers, for young adults to separate from their parents and to move away from the family home and make their own life, make their peer relationships, make romantic relationships. So, yeah, so I'm trying to explain in those two chapters, I'm trying to explain, (laughs) it's like a how-to guide for teenagers about their parents. How do parents work? (laughs) What's going on here? Why are you getting these feelings 
Another topic that you cover, which is very intense for for young girls, is friendships. And that you say female friendships are less about shared interests and more about shared mental spaces. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So this is a generalization. It's not true for every girl or boy, because I'm going to compare and contrast. But often boys' friendships are more about shared activities. So they tend to play soccer together or hockey or or they like to game together and they have a kind of a script almost that goes around those shared activities whereas girls friendships tend to be about connecting about through their words and connecting about talking about and thinking about the same thing at the same time so in my book that's drawn out as a sort of thought bubble a joint thought bubble between two of them thinking about the same things and you talk about different relationship patterns and some of them are healthier than others. What are you seeing are some of the relationship patterns with young girls? Well, I mean, this is an area where I am hopeful because I think most young girls and, and teenage girls, young women go through difficult times in their friendships when they're younger. And we end up as adult women as having really wonderful female friendships, which are a real pleasure in life. But in earlier years, sometimes the issues of power get caught up in issues of friendship. This can happen in a number of different ways. And I go through some of those ways in my book. So one common way that we see in kind of younger children, particularly is the kind of on off friend. And that's the friend where you go into the playground one day and somebody, you know, maybe you're nine, 10, 11 years old and the kind of popular cool girl links arms with you and starts whispering all her secrets to you. And you just, as a young girl, you just feel like, oh, this is great. This is somebody, this is my best friend. I'm right in the center of attention. I feel really for. And then the next day that best friend then turns her attention to somebody else. And you come down into the playground and you see her linked arms with someone else, whispering in somebody else's ear. And that is exquisitely painful. And it's funny that that bit of my book has connected to so many people. I think lots of older women, when they read that book, they go, oh, I remember that girl at school. I remember what she was like. <laughs> and so I kind of trying to deconstruct that a little bit and try and understand it from both sides and what's going on. There's lots of research showing that in high school years, there's a thing called popular so when they do the research, they go into a particular year group or a particular class and they ask them to list, uh, I, I, I don't remember, maybe three or five kids in the class who they think are popular or three and five kids who they think are liked. And when the researchers put those names together, what they discover is there are popular kids who have power. And then there's like kids who are nice kids. They're friendly, they're easygoing, they're humorous, they don't cause trouble amongst the peers. So the popular kids have other things going on. They, they're popular because they're cool, they're popular because sometimes they're rich or they're good at sport or they're part of a particular society or group which is seen as trendy or, or that sort of thing. And so that then again, friendship gets caught up in power dynamics. So just in the book, I just go through some of those patterns and I try and help young people understand them. And, you know, that's been enormously helpful in my clinical work when I've done that with, with young people. So I sort of wanted to share that, that information more widely. What should a healthy friendship look like for a, an adolescent girl? I guess you don't want there to be too much power in it. You don't want to feel like somebody's got expectations on you. You don't want to have to change yourself to fit in. It shouldn't involve too much 
being mean to other people or, or gossip. I mean, I'm not going to say no gossip because I think, you know, gossip is almost universal, isn't it? So, yeah, people who are kind and, you know, got your back, really. Same as in adult life, I think. So how can parents teach their young girls how to recognize what a healthy friendship might be and what an unhealthy friendship might be? Well, they can buy them my book <laughs> and then they can read it in a public place and go, oh, that's so interesting, and then put it down. Don't tell your daughter to read it because obviously then she won't read it. But if you do that, they might actually pick it up and they'll, they'll probably get engrossed with what a healthy friendship and what an unhealthy friendship is. I think it's really difficult, isn't it? No child has ever said to me, I wish my mum would give me more advice. In fact, none of the adults I work with say that either. In fact, I don't think those words have ever been spoken by any woman. I wish my mum would give me more advice. No. So I think what you've got to do is there's lots of listening. There's lots of being empathic, of being curious, of asking clever questions, of, of reflecting things back. You know, I think parents often go in saying, well, she's not a good friend to you. I think you should just leave her alone. And of course... In doing that, you're often dismissing the, the complexities of the, you know, the power dynamics and and the choices and perhaps more realistically, the lack of choice that you sometimes have as an adolescent in a school setting. So plenty of listening. If you do feel like a bit of advice is going to come out of your mouth, say the in the, the immortal words, do you want my advice about this before you speak it? Sometimes you might want to throw in a, like an aside. Oh my goodness, that sounds like a on-off friend or that sounds like that girl is popular rather than nice and that will perhaps elicit a little bit of curiosity from your daughter to ask well what do you mean an on-off friend what do you mean that she's popular rather than nice you know those sorts of things so that's what I would do. You mentioned that young girls tend to have healthier friendships when their parents parenting style isn't accomplishment focused. Well, I'm kind of a little bit negative on accomplishment focus generally, I have to say. I think that is the kind of error I think we are making as a generation of parents that is sort of trickled down through society in the way we live now to become what I call an outcome model of parenting, where we were always looking at qualifications and grades and whether they've made some team or whether they've achieved in some way or, or another and I guess I see that to do with the kind of pace of life and the, the, the changes in the workplace and the global economy and all of that, that we can very easily as parents go into doing mode, over being mode all, all the time. And, and I do feel that, you know, in Western nations, what we're seeing is that there's a huge number of young women who, and teenage girls who are struggling with their mental health. And I think girls are very sensitive to those, those messages that they should be doing more. So I guess I, I see kind of accomplished-based parenting as something we probably all need to be thinking about and reining in a little bit and just being conscious that that our children can be very sensitive. And lots of the mental health difficulties that I see in clinic are girls feeling that they're not enough, they're not good enough, they're not smart enough, they're not achieving enough, they're not pretty enough, thin enough, they just aren't doing well enough. And however wonderfully they're doing, that kind of accomplishment-based parenting is, I think, well, it's like a Petri dish on which that kind of feeling of not being enough it, it can grow. And social media doesn't help. 
as parents, I think we're very quick to blame social media and the internet and to see that as the main change and say it's all about being on the phone. But of course, I think that acts in tandem with what the accomplishment based parenting to create a perfect storm of expectations. Um, so you have the expectations in real life to make the grade, to get make the team, and then to escape from that, you go online. But online, there's more of that sort of stuff. It's less explicit, perhaps. It's more implicit. It's about the number of likes. It's about the types of bodies, perfect bodies. I'm using speech marks with those that perfect. And that's another whole different area of expectation and and accomplishment that everything becomes a, a, a show or a act that you're putting on. I want to ask you a little bit more about that the digital revolution you talk about in the book. But first of all, I just wanted to share the statistic that you have, which is extremely alarming. 20 to 30 percent of teen girls in the UK and the US engage in self-harm. And why is this happening? I think it's happening for two reasons. I think the level of distress amongst teen girls and young women is consistently showing up as high and increasing. So compared to when, when you nail down into the statistics about uh, mental health, the teen girls and the young women seem to be the young people who are the, the group that are suffering the most. They seem to be having the most mental health difficulties. So there's an enormous amount. What do I mean by mental health difficulties? I guess I mean that there's an enormous amount of distress about out there in teenage girls' minds, that they are feeling they're feeling bad about themselves. They're feeling those sense of expectations. They're feeling like they're not good enough. And when people get in that distress, whatever we call it, whether we call it depression or uh, anxiety or shame, it comes out somewhere. And sometimes it comes out in something like an eating disorder, and sometimes it comes out in something like self-harm. And self-harm has you know, co-occurred with the digital revolution. So it's become a kind of way young girls are using to cope with the distress they feel. They feel not good enough. They feel desperately unhappy. They feel like they can't bear this moment. They're full up with emotion, difficult emotions. They have no idea what to do with it. And they're aware of self-harm. It's become, it's out there in the ether. It's out there in on social media, it's out there in mainstream media stories about self-harm. And so it's one of the available options to deal with this enormous sense of distress. And it fits. It fits for lots of the girls in the sense that they feel that they're not good enough. They feel like they need to suffer, that they're bad. So I think it's both those two different factors. It's both that it's become a method that is out there that people are talking about that is is a, they are aware of that a generation ago it wasn't and because the dis- amount of distress out there is bigger i'm going to get to <laughs> give you an opportunity to speak more hopefully when we move back, move forward in this conversation but before we get there you talk about the fact that we're living in an anxiety epidemic why has today become so stressful for young people? I think I've touched on this already. I mean, in, in my book, I draw it out in a, sort of a set of circles that become smaller and smaller. And I guess I see that the pressure from society, from things like social media, from the kind of 
global economy, from the pace of life that we're living at, has an impact on communities. Um, communities are less connected. There's less, I mean, I, I personally think this is a great thing, but there's more women in the workplace, but there's less women at home looking after their kids in, in, in the way they were a generation ago, keeping an eye on stuff. It has an impact on friendships, the way um, friendships have changed through social media, the way friendships are changed through competition and comparison, comparison through social media, but also competition through the education system. There's been enormous changes in the education system where in most countries now there's been a sort of sense of grade inflation, of increased competition for this idea of the best universities, which again is a concept that I sort of deconstruct in the book. And then we see that being played out in the way we parent, that we feel like we have to get the best outcomes for our kids because there's so much competition out there. And right at the center of this kind of these circles coming down is, is a young person feeling all those layers of pressure, not communicating it like that to me. But this is what I've drawn out from, you know, all the thousands of conversations I've had. And, you know, it's making them feel not good enough. And that's a, a position of anxiety, feeling not good enough. You must do better. You must achieve more. You must work harder. You must be slimmer. So that's how I see how I see it, really. So just the opposite of that anxiety that young girls and women are dealing with, you, you talk about emotional competence and finding emotional balance. Can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that young girls can find that balance? Well, I guess what I mean by emotional competence is the sort of ability to be aware of their own emotions, to name them and to manage their feelings in, in a kind of, in a competent, constructive way. And, and, and nobody can do that when the pressure on them is, is completely overwhelming. But we, we do want to sort of encourage that in kind of normal circumstances. So when we have difficult feelings, you don't want to ignore your difficult feelings. They will just, they can fester or they can eat away at you or they can cause you to do things which aren't, you know, best for your physical or mental health. But nor do you want to be dominated by them. You don't want to let them rule your whole life. And so finding that balance where you can manage your feelings is what I'm kind of aiming for with young with young women. And and I, I kind of give them different frameworks in the book to try and understand their feelings, to, to be able to talk about them, to be able to look at the different elements of how, how feelings work. You have that emotion, the emotional wheel. I do. I have an emotional wheel in there, yes, which is a great way of thinking of talking about feelings. So the emotional wheel has the kind of core emotions of sad and happy and angry and anxious different wheels you can google that straight away there's lots of them out there but they have different different people who make them feel are the core emotions and and then it, it leads out so anger might break down into being frustrated or being full of rage or being mildly irritated and then the next layer out of the circle has has other words and the idea is that when you're when you're feeling you've got really really strong feelings you can go to the center of the wheel and kind of identify the broad brush of the emotion you're feeling I'm feeling uh I'm feeling anxious I'm I'm feeling kind of down and then go out from the center to other other words which might capture how you're feeling more specifically and that's important because when we can communicate our feelings we can get that sense of connection that we're not on our own with our feelings so when I'm working with families sometimes I recommend that they send print 
one of those off the internet and stick it on the fridge and and then it gives an, a sort of framework for people talking about their uh, talking about their feelings um and naming their feelings which is one part of you know emotional competence you also mentioned things like physical fitness mindfulness connecting with your senses i like the recommendation taking things one step at a time yes i've put lots of things in there i mean sometimes it's really difficult for parents i mean i'm putting it to the young people it's about what might be helpful for them. As parents, it's often quite difficult to get your kids to engage in these sort of more positive activities and get them off TikTok. (laughs) Come off TikTok and go for a nice walk in the countryside. Yeah, no, they're not really that keen on that. So I'm trying to give them, I'm trying to explain why some of those things are important. And, you know, for example, mindfulness, which is one that's very popular amongst adults at the moment. You know, I am a real proponent of that when I'm working with adults and and in my own life I find it really helpful and the research is really good as well so it's a positive thing but I find it very difficult to ever persuade any of the teenagers that I work with to engage in mindful activities but I think there are mindful things that they do and less mindful things they do so that's where I'm trying to work with them so for example I mean I think TikTok can be enormously creative and fun and stimulating and a good way to connect to your friends but it's not really mindful you're scrolling through masses and masses of stuff but sometimes kids can be quite mindful when they're watching reruns of their favorite show friends is seems particularly popular for that but just allows them to be the pace of life is slowed down it's very predictable they're in a kind of zoned out state rather than a kind of highly stimulated state so thinking with young people about what might help them be less stimulated that's just a little example but there's lots of examples like that in the book yeah well mindfulness can come in lots of different forms i mean when we're just staring out the window for 30 seconds that's a mindful moment even if it's maybe not something we've planned or set out to do right So I imagine, as you said, a teenager watching a show like Friends is a form of mindfulness for them. Exactly. And I guess we just know that there's less mindful moments now, that we all do it. We we don't stare out the window for a moment on the train or we pick up our phones, don't we, and and, and scroll. So thinking about things like that, thinking about exercise and how that can be helpful and often people aren't keen on it, all the different aspects of how we how you can manage your feelings. You know, when I was reading the list of things that, you know, are part of this anxiety epidemic, you know, the hyperconnectivity, lack of community, lack of pastoral care and education, you talk about the the focus on grades and accomplishments. You know, as a parent, it's extremely daunting to read this. How can we be helping our girls and young women to thrive in this environment as parents? Oh, I hope it isn't too daunting. (laughs) I I hope it's got some good ideas in it as well. I guess lots of different ways, and hopefully there are those ideas in the books. I think one of the most important things to remember about those teenage years is the sense of connection. And, you know, so when the stuff about grades and accomplishments tips over into damaging your connection, you really need to be thinking about that because the the teenage years are difficult and your kid is going to come up with some problems at some point. They're going to get into difficult romantic entanglement. They're going to be under pressure to drink or to take drugs. They're going to perhaps make a a mistake on what they want to study or on passing the right exams at the right time. And what you want your kid to be able to do is you want them to be able to come to you and to be able to talk to you about it. 
you don't want them to be on their own with, with that. So I guess the most important thing is keeping that sense of connection. Added to that, I guess I would be creating times when you can be with your teenager and not be asking them to do anything. Um, so the difference between being and doing is a really important one. And I think that's really difficult. You know, that's, you know, something that as a working mum that, you know, you come in from work and you, you almost have a list of, have you done this? Have you done that? So trying to keep hold of that kind of being space of just, and related to that, to both of those really is where opportunities tip over from opportunities into expectations. So we can often want our kids to have the opportunities that we didn't have, be that to play soccer or to travel or to go to a particular college. And that can be great to offer them that opportunity. But sometimes we offer so hard that it becomes internalized, it becomes an expectation on them. And that that can be really difficult. I, a lot of the kids I see who are distressed have a lot of expectations on them that they've internalized, that they think they have to get 90% on the test always or that people will be disappointed in them. So I guess those three things, the, the sense of connection, the sense of being with them rather than doing things and opportunities rather than expectations. I mean, you've mentioned a lot here about not to blame social media for everything, but you know, we do, our kids are on their, on their phones. And you wrote an article for the Guardian newspaper about mobile phones and anxiety. And you say our phone is like a scab that we know we shouldn't pick. I mean, how can we be supporting our children? I mean, I'm speaking personally as a, a child who's begging to have a cell phone and I'm terrified <laughs> of giving it to her. How do we get our girls to be more critical thinkers when they are on their phones? The phone is a really, really tricky one and we haven't got all day. So um, that's how I write my second book on that. I, I think, you know, when kids are young and their child's begging for a phone, then is it real time to be setting down really boundaries with the phone you really want to be setting this is a point actually going to the point about expectations we can have expectations about things like phones about rules of when you're trying to keep this child safe I don't mean not having expectations like that and I think with the phone you can have very clear expectations but especially and you've got the most leverage to get those expectations in before you give them a phone and I always recommend to parents when they're first getting a phone is that we, we look, we sometimes look for a cell phone with a lot of mobile data. And actually you should be looking for a cell phone with very little mobile data because then you've got better control over what they're doing on it. So those are the first steps. And I definitely think for a sort of 11, 12 year old, 13 year old, even you, you need to be making that explicit. The phone is a responsibility. You should do things on the phone, which enhance our values that take you towards connection, take you towards the things that are important to us as a family, not away from them. The phone can cause harm, all of these sorts of rules that you might, when we think about the kind of things we have to teach our kids about, you know, about road safety or road safety is a perfect example, really. You know, we have to teach them about what the dangers are and what the responsibilities are and how how to navigate those uh, later on, it comes more complicated and teenagers, older teenagers, are very reluctant to take their parents' advice about phones because they think we know nothing about them. And they've got a point, really, because they've grown up with them. They're, they're natives in phone land and, and we're, we're immigrants to phone lands. So we, we, we know less. We have to keep it up to date 
We have to know what's out there. Your child's friends are often a really good source of information when they're hanging around your kitchen table. They're much more willing to show you what Snapchat is or or that or that sort of thing than your own kid generally is. And keeping the connection, keeping it light, keeping talking about it so that they trust you and sometimes throwing in that little nugget of information or advice about it when it's the right moment. I really liked the uh, Russ Harris values checklist that you included, that girls can follow a checklist to sort of help them determine what their strong values are as maybe a way to mitigate some of what they see. Yeah, that's something I work a lot with therapeutically. And it was very kind of Russ Harris, who's an Australian psychologist, to let me include it in the book. So the idea is that you're just trying to identify what's important to us, not in terms of our output or outcome or accomplishments, but just in the way we want to live our lives, whether being adventurous is more important or being quieter is more important, whether being studious is important, whether being fun-loving is more important. So trying to help them see what they want their journey to be like, really. I guess I, I want to find out from you how, the best way that parents can use this book with their kids. Do we set, as you said, you set it down and just leave it there. Do you read it yourself as a parent and then potentially discuss it with them? How would you like to see that happening? What do you think is the best way to get our teenage girls to get as much as they can out of, out of your book? Catelyn Mann's words were very kind. And I, I guess it is a kind of reference book. You know, there's lots of different bits. It's not just one theme going through the book. There's different bits that would be relevant at different times. You know, the friendship chapter is really a chapter that I think is relevant for the younger demographic. And then the, the chapter on love and sex is obviously, you know, an older demographic. I think it depends on what sort of relationship you have with your child as well as what, what age they are and whether they're going to be a reluctant reader or keen reader whether they're interested in in thinking about themselves in that way. You know, I joked earlier about putting it down and perhaps telling them not to read it. That might be the good way of getting them to read it. And I sometimes joke with people about that. Getting the cool aunt, if you've got one, to buy it for them or the older cousin or something like that, that can be a good way. But, you know, some young people would be happy to take their parents' recommendation. I mean, I didn't write it for parents, but parents have found it very interesting. I think they've particularly found the chapters on attachment and families interesting because it makes them think about it from the other point of view. There's so many thousands of books about how to be as a parent. And there's, this gives an explanation of how it might feel to be parented. And that's just a different perspective. And it kind of, parents are a bit discombobulated by it, really. And I think they find it really interesting to read that yeah but I think also some of the information that we talked about earlier about friendship can be really helpful for parents to think about how they talk about friends with their youngsters what do you think that teen girls wish that their parents understood better everyone we all wish to be understood don't we we all wish to have somebody get us I mean that's primarily what I do in therapy I try and get them I try and understand them I listen really hard I use a lot of empathy, you know, being with somebody in what they're experiencing and trying to understand it from their point of view. And a lot of curiosity, I just, I want to know how they see the world. And so I have to ask a lot of questions about it. And I think that's what we all want, isn't it? Um, and I think as parents, we often are busy, we're in a rush, we've got dinner to make, got someone to drive somewhere. 
and we rush to advice and we rush to solutions and kind of minimize their experience. And we've touched on in the way the world is different. Their experience is different from ours. And trying to understand that, I think, is key. I asked at a parenting talk recently, was being asked by a dad, what should I say when she says, you don't understand me? And I say, well, you say, I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. Explain it to me again. I'm sorry I don't get it yet. I'm going to really try. I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen really hard. And you, you try and explain it to me. I'm here trying to understand. And actually, when I said that, a, a woman in a different part of the audience started to laugh. And I thought, oh, my goodness, have I made a terrible faux pas? And actually, it was her husband, and she thought it was hilarious. <laughs> so that's that what he had to do. You know, these are very challenging times, pandemics, <laughs> you know, digital anxiety. And it's a particularly intense time to be a mental health professional. What keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic? I am optimistic about this generation of young women. I think they're amazing. I think they, they kick ass. You know, they're just, they're so emotionally competent. I think they will parent in a very different way than we parented. I think they will look at some of the pressure they were under and make analogies to Victorian kids being put up chimneys. They will just think that we were we were mad to parent like this. <laughs> I bet they will have really strict rules about social media and phones as well. So I am optimistic. I'm optimistic about their ability to identify the nub of the issue, really. So I choose to be optimistic. I'm hopeful. You don't understand me finding yourself facing your problems and figuring out life when nobody gets it. Uh, your book is available in stores now. Dr. Porter, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.